0: Hello, thanks for joining us for this episode of New Books in Philosophy. I'm Robert Talese. I'm professor of philosophy at Vanderbilt University. I co host the program with Carrie Figder. Carrie is associate professor of philosophy at the University of Iowa. My guest today is Candice Delmas. Candice is assistant professor of philosophy and political science at Northeastern University. She's a moral and political philosopher working on normative questions about political authority, citizenship, and obligation. Candice's new book is titled A Duty to Resist When Disobedience Should Be Uncivil. It's published by Oxford University Press. Now, according to a long tradition in political philosophy, there are certain conditions under which citizens may rightly disobey a law enacted by even a legitimate political authority. That is, it's common for political philosophers to recognize the permissibility of what's come to be known as civil disobedience, even under broadly just political conditions. There are, of course, longstanding debates... Over how to distinguish civil from uncivil disobedience, what forms of civil disobedience are permissible, what forms of what what disobedience, um, what kinds of acts disobedience may take, um, and the difference between civil disobedience and other kinds of principled law breaking, such as, for example, conscientious refusal. Yet the consensus seems to be that whenever disobedience is permissible, it must also be enacted within the constraints of civility. Now, in her book, Candice Dalmas challenges this consensus. She develops an argument according to which the standard accounts of the general obligation to obey the law also would permit forms of principled lawbreaking that go beyond the standard constraints of civility. So there's a lot to talk about, but let's begin as we normally do with our guest. Hello, Candice. Hello, Bob. Why don't you get us started by telling us a little bit about yourself?
1: Um, sure, uh, and thanks for inviting me. It's a real pleasure to
0: be here. Well, thank you for joining us.
1: <laughs> so, um, I'm originally from France. I grew up right outside Nice on the French Riviera. Uh, that did not prepare me very well for New England's winters, unfortunately. <laughs> um I fell into philosophy in high school, uh, first by studying literature. Uh, I remember we read very philosophical texts like Jean-Jacques Rousseau and Voltaire, um, starting in around 10th grade. And then the next year, the curriculum for the French baccalaureate in literature included, um, The Human Condition by André Malraux, The Fall by uh, Albert Camus, and uh, Life is a Dream by Pedro Calderon, and I still remember vividly that year I found all these texts just fascinating and wh- I wanted to hear more about the philosophy that they were relying on and articulating. I loved uh, I loved poetry too, Baudelaire, Rimbaud, Verlaine, and the, uh, uh, their reflections on mortality, beauty, and art. I was also a fan of um, Stanley Kubrick and David Lynch whose films I found beautiful and enigmatic. And so I I just longed to appreciate and understand all that even better with philosophy. Um, And by this time, I started actually taking philosophy classes, which was uh, in high school, eight hours per week. Um, I was I was hooked. Um, I studied it as an undergrad uh, in Paris and then in the U.S. in graduate school. So that's the thread of my interest in philosophy. And it didn't. Uh, intersect with my interest in civil disobedience until uh, until uh, I, I joined the PhD program. So I, I had been always fascinated by social movements and popular uprisings. I, I grew up at the end of the Cold War with the fall of the Berlin Wall and the rise of uh, democratic independence movements throughout the Soviet Union. Protest is also you know, central uh, to France. It's in France's DNA. So we, we uh, talk about the French Revolution, the Paris Commune and May uh, 1968 a lot. Um, as a f- French youth, going to demonstrations is a bit of a rite of passage and uh, strikes regularly uh, paralyze France. And all this um, had made me especially receptive to the U.S. tradition of Principle disobedience, which I discovered in grad school thanks to my advisor, David Lyons. Mm. So we, we discussed uh, uh, and read about abolitionists in uh, Antebellum U.S., the boycotts and civil disobedience campaigns of the civil rights movement, the radical activism of black nationalists, uh, the political violence of uh, left-wing groups like the Weather Underground. And uh, I... Uh, In contrast with this rich tradition and political significance of uh, civil disobedience, I was surprised to see the the philosophical focus on questions of obedience, mostly, really. Um, While... You know, thinking about civil disobedience is always narrowly confined and so doesn't come close to addressing the variety of disobedience I just mentioned. And really, principal disobedience, uh, at least when I um, started studying, was uh, relatively neglected uh, in, uh, in philosophy. So, um, yeah, that's how I, I got interested into uh, in, in civil disobedience.
0: That's fabulous. Um, can I just ask a question? You mentioned the Kubrick and um, uh, um, uh, um, David Lynch films. Were there any particular uh, particular films by either of those filmmakers that you thought was especially philosophical? Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah. <laughs> I have an interest in film that many people don't know about. <laughs> oh,
1: really? <laughs> do you like those two directors in particular?
0: Uh, y- yes, in particular, I do, yeah.
1: Um yeah, so I loved uh two thousand one, The Space Odyssey and uh and the Clockwork Orange and um and some of the older films too and uh with Lynch I loved uh, I love Twin Peaks, actually the T V (laughs) show and um Lost Highway and yeah. Um
0: yeah, there's some very deep thoughts about modal logic in Lost Highway. <laughs> uh, but let's, let's, let's I could talk a long time uh, about, about, about some of those films. But um, let's pick up with the book, um, which is really, really fabulous. So let me just start by congratulating you. I think you've written a, a really, really nice uh, piece of philosophy here. Um, so the, the the book, which is titled The Duty to Resist, remember, um, uh, begins with the idea that the very grounds that are offered uh, typically in support of the duty to obey the law, those very reasons, those very arguments, those very grounds can be marshaled in support of an obligation to resist injustice. And then you argue, very broadly now, that this obligation may permit forms of uh, principled disobedience that standard views of civil disobedience uh, would deem impermissible. Um, and you say that you were led to this kind of view by taking seriously not only the views of political activists. But the descriptions of um, the descriptions offered by political activists of what they were doing and what the justification was, uh, or is for what they were doing, um, can you tell us a little bit about that background in particular?
1: Uh, yes, sure. So there's a there's a disconnect between, on the one end, uh, activists' practice uh, of principle disobedience, resistance, their activism, their discourse around it, and on the other end, analytical, philosophical theorizing about um, civil disobedience. So uh, I want to talk about that disconnect first, and then I'll I'll say a little more about the civil and civil distinction. So so let me start with the theory. Um, Philosophers who are concerned with the rights and duties of citizens uh, often defend a moral duty to obey the law. Uh, the duty to obey the law um, requires obeying unjust law in nearly just legitimate states. And this has been standardly assumed even by champions of civil disobedience. So they will uh, generally mount their defense of civil disobedience within that background of um, the duty to obey, and they will um, start with the understanding that with the notion that breaking the law is presumptively wrong and in need of justification given the duty to obey there's also so the, the equation of political obligation with the duty to obey right so that's really all uh we uh, focus on um, and I think that equation ignores the fact that under non-ideal conditions, like the ones we live under, obedience might not be our primary or most urgent political obligation. Uh, so, so part of the project is to expand the scope of political obligation to to make it a plural thing. Our political obligations, depending on the socio-political legal conditions we live under. So, and and so and given. This- Background again. So, returning to the the theory. So, champions of civil disobedience show that um, civil disobedience, given its uh, narrow constraints, given certain justificatory conditions, such as it's being used as a last recourse against real injustice. Um, Uh, Really trying to uh, minimize the disruption and so on may be permissible despite it's violating the duty to obey. So it's framed in terms of a permission or a right uh, under narrow uh, circumstances, uh, given that uh, the the, the duty to obey. That's basically um, the the theory, though there there are exceptions. um, And meanwhile, activists Recognize and have always recognized principle disobedience and resistance to injustice as a responsibility. Not not merely an option to be chosen under uh, the narrowest of circumstances. And so, so if you look at um, Henry David Thoreau, Mahatma Gandhi, and Martin Luther King Jr., who are the paragons of civil disobedience, even ac- according to um, theorists, in their writings, in their speeches, um, they they talk about non-cooperation with uh, with injustice as a moral duty or the duty to disobey unjust law depending on the, the scope of the injustice right And uh, so, so that's really the, the um, that is the the, uh, the way activists have been thinking about it uh, contemporary activists, uh, also think about it that way. So um, human rights organizations that provide a shelter to uh, irregular migrants. In France, for instance, the Collective Contre les Expulsions defends a moral duty of solidarity. Uh, since the election of uh, President Donald Trump in the U.S., activists from Black Lives Matter to Indivisible to the Sta- Center for Constitutional Rights urges to uh, recognize and fulfill our duty to resist, given the, the threat to democracy that uh, President Trump represents. Again, Me Too and Time's Up. Um, uh, Recognize a duty to stand up and call out uh, uh, perpetrators of uh, sexual abuse. So, and the list could go on, right? So I, I wanted to hit these calls from a theoretical, philosophical perspective, show that they were uh, rightly framed in, uh, uh, that they rightly framed the uh, um, resistance to injustice as a matter of duty and not as a permission. And I found that the traditional arguments for a, the moral duty to obey the law provided all we need to defend, uh, the, the duty to resist. And now, um, on the, on the civil and civil distinction, because I haven't said anything about it there, but so while theorists, um, focus narrowly on civil, Disobedience activists don't do that, but they don't really talk about uncivil. So let, let, let me say a little bit there. Sure. The, so <clears throat> the standard conception of uh, civil disobedience, so propounded by John uh, Rawls, commonly endorsed uh, by the public, is narrower than the principle disobedience that activists call for and that I think we should reflect on. So on the standard view, civil disobedience is a conscientious, public, nonviolent breach of law undertaken by an agent willing to accept punishment with the goal of persuading the majority to change a law or policy by appealing to the community's shared principle Shared principles of justice. And so, given all this disobedience, there is supposed to be undertaken within the limits of f- fidelity to law. Um, that's why it can be permissible on these the, uh, standard liberal accounts. So, I, um, I, I identify four marks of civility from this standard view. Uh, one is publicity, so the uh, disobedience must be open uh, and, and communicative. It's designed to be read as a, as a speech act by a given audience. Um, the second is nonviolence, which prohibits the use of force, uh, the infliction of harm and damage to property. Sometimes it also excludes coercion, but I don't think uh, it, it should. So I don't take, I don't take nonviolence to necessarily uh, prohibit coercion. The third, uh, n- mark of civility is non-invasion, which just means that the agent accepts the legal consequences, so may not necessarily seek them out, but accept them when they come. And the fourth which is uh, implicit, I think, not explicitly stated in um, the phil- philosophical definitions like Ross's is decorum. So the idea that the um, the disobedience should conform with social norms of respectfulness and considerateness. Um, now, th- there's been a lot of critiques of the standard conception. And uh, so, theorists like uh, Kimberly Brownlee and Robin Silicatus have uh, redefined civil disobedience uh, more broadly so that they would include acts of principled disobedience that are covered, evasive, uh, and even violent, um, basically so long as they remain, um, communicative, even if they're not primarily communicative, but they, they should be basically communicative. So that, that's not the, the road I take, right? So they're, they're, um, they are undertaking an, an ameliorative project on civil disobedience, which, um, should, Help make some um, historical or novel forms of protest uh, that don't fit the standard account, nonetheless acceptable, and um, to make them acceptable, stretching the label "civil" to include them seems seems like a, a, a good idea, a good way of doing that. But I, I, so I see a couple of issues um, with this approach, which is why I, I wanted to think about incivility instead. So the first one is that. Um, It's just not very persuasive to the lay public and pundits and officials, etc., who are used to associating civil disobedience with the four marks of civility I just mentioned. So if you just declare that civil disobedience includes covered, violent, evasive acts of uh, civil disobedience, people are like, well, that's not really what uh, we're talking about. Mm-hmm. And the second problem is that... um some, a number of activists and dissidents, uh, from the English suffragists to the activist group Anonymous, uh, the radical feminist collectives Pussy Riot and Femen, openly and deliberately flout the standard script of civil disobedience. Um, uh, they usually do so because they want to make a point of refusing the system's legitimacy and so rather than trying to shoehorn these acts into the category of civil disobedience, I wanted to grant their instability and inquire into um, their possible justification. So, so just to, to, to finish, on, on my view on civil disobedience, um, designates acts of principled disobedience that may or may not be communicative. So that includes direct action. And that violate one or more of the four norms or marks of civility uh, by being covert, violent, evasive, or uh, uh, offensive. Um, and so, and given and civil disobedience that's understood, I trying to um, uh, think about the potential instrumental or expressive value of, uh, of uh, acts like this.
0: Excellent. Let me just ask a uh, sort of just a quick kind of conceptual question. Um, if uh, on your account, um, the the thought is that a successful conception of um, uh, civil disobedience or maybe just principled lawbreaking, to use the, the more general term that you use, um, uh, if a successful account of, of principled lawbreaking um ought to, um, accommodate or try to capture, um, what, uh, political activists, um, say that they're doing and what their, their commitments seem to be. And if, um, part of what activists say they're doing often is that they are responding to a duty to not be complicit with injustice, to uh, resist injustice, to um, do what they can to rectify injustice. Um, Do we then wind up with a view or does your view wind up um, uh, taking a position um, where uh, those who don't protest are blameworthy
1: Yes, we can. (laughs) I thought so. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I, I, we, I mean, we should talk about that. After I have, uh, I, I seek to convince you of the duty to resist based on all the uh, grounds of, um, based on uh, the four grounds is standardly used to defend the duty to obey the law. But yes, I do think that people who do nothing are usually blameworthy.
0: Perfect. Um, that's good. I, I just wanted to, 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 to make sure that, um, that that was, um, uh, part of the, part of what was explicitly in the, in the background of, uh, um, of the discussion as we get into the meat of the book. Um,
1: but so, can I say something yeah. about, so cause I thought you were going to ask me more about the, So the, the, the success, a successful theory of principle disobedience, um, accounts for activists own understanding of what it is they're doing. So yes, I take um, phenomenological accuracy to be one of the desiderata. But the theory is not exactly, is not really, um, it, it is not entirely committed to it. So um, there are activists, so to take just one example, Edward Snowden insists in is uh, engaged in civil disobedience, and I think... Um, is wrong <laughs> about that that uh, government whistleblowing is its own kind of principle disobedience which violates some marks of stability and that's okay we can still uh, we can um, justify it on its own terms um, and that invo- that involves a different path than the standard justification of civil disobedience so I think it's a it's so it's a it's a kind of preliminary um, uh, laying of the land that doesn't uh, g- quite completely constrain the account.
0: Sure, sure. Um, let me – can I just – one other methodological sort of question before we, we get into what I take to be the, the central uh, line of argument in the book um, and this is already sort of – was touched on um, touched on in uh, part of what you were just saying. Um, you know, it's always struck me as very um, puzzling in political philosophy that our conception of civil disobedience or the standard conceptions of civil disobedience still seem to be conceptions within ideal theory and, um, and it's it's always sort of struck me as puzzling that civil disobedience is in, is is kind of intrinsically a non-ideal phenomenon <laughs> right um yeah. so can you tell us a little bit just about um uh the relation uh, you, you know you mentioned this uh, discussed it early in the book the sort of re- the where you place yourself um with respect to this longer tradition uh in political philosophy which is mainly concerned with giving a fairly highly idealized conception of permissible um, uh, disobedience. you're I take it more interested in in pursuing the topic from the perspective of uh, non-ideal conditions. is that right?
1: Yes, that's right. Right. So, um, theories of civil disobedience are supposed to be ostensibly non-ideal theories, right? So, John Rawls presents this as an incursion into non-ideal theory, uh, which is designed to help address real-world issues, presumably, such as the, um, anti-war student activism and civil rights protests of his time. But, <laughs> This, he, th- he thinks that civil disobedience is a problem only in the special case of the nearly just society. Right. Um, and so it, so civil disobedience is only a problem there because of the moral duty to obey the law, which would make disobedience presumptively permissible, impermissible. It's not a problem in less than nearly just uh, not quite legitimate and illegitimate societies where citizens are not morally bound to obey the law, because their disobedience does not presumptively require justification. Um, so it's a it's a very idealized non-ideal theory, as you just said. Um, it's it's uh, very uh, it, it's it's restricted to this. Um, ideal set of circumstances, idealized set of non-ideal circumstances. Um, And it is not very helpful wherever society's legitimacy is in question, which is in the real world, really. So um, part of what I do in the book is describe the way the standard theory, despite being explicitly restricted to the nearly just society, has been applied to uh, non-ideal political conditions like Uh, our societies, historically and at present, right? So even to talk about the kind of disobedience against Jim Crow, it was taken to be a a good theory to apply there. And that has had the effect of um, imposing very demanding criteria on disobedience and, in effect, deterring resistance. So even though it was supposed to be this kind of, um, I guess progressive sort of theory to say there's a duty to obey the law, but there's room for civil disobedience because uh, it's been applied to uh, really less than nearly just circumstances. It has, uh, it, it, it has made for a really, uh, counter resistance, uh, sort of, uh, ideological work really in the background there. So. Um, that's, yeah, that's my, my, my problems with the theory. But I, I mean, I should say I do take up the liberal challenge by situating my arguments for the duty to resist and the justification of uncivil disobedience within these nearly just supposedly legitimate societies. So I'm trying to convince, um, liberals, uh, even though I, I mean, we would probably disagree on the diagnosis of legitimacy, but I try to accept that, um, the, to to uh, take up the challenge that way, so
0: yeah, All right, So great. Um, let's then sort of pick up then um, uh, the central the, the central thread of the argument, um, which is as, as you were just saying, um, willing to start with um, the standard accounts in more or less mainstream liberal political philosophy about why there's an obligation or why there's a presumptive obligation to obey the law. Um, So the central argument, as I understand it runs that these standard accounts of the duty to obey um, actually when sort of just extended in fairly natural ways, support an obligation to, to resist injustice and that obligation to resist injustice, um, also lends itself to an, uh, to an argument that suggests that um, we are not merely permitted, but to have a duty um, to engage in various kinds of principled lawbreaking, including uncivil disobedience, when the injustice of the laws, you know, reaches a certain uh, degree of severity. Um, so can we begin then uh, where you yourself begin? So one purported ground for the duty to obey the law uh, is sometimes just sort of the natural duty of justice theory. Um, uh, can you tell us a little bit about how um, th- th- this natural duty account of the duty to obey um, can be extended into a uh, duty to resist and then ultimately a duty to um, uh, uh, engage in principled law breaking?
1: Yes, sure. Yeah, I think that the natural duty of justice is the uh, most uh, widely embraced source of political obligation, so that's why I wanted to start there. Um, so According to Rawls, uh, Rawls, the duty of justice has two parts, right? It requires uh, supporting just institutions by complying with those that exist and apply to us and by uh, assisting in the establishment of just arrangements uh, when they do not exist, when this can be done with little cost to ourselves. All right. Um, so there, there are, since Ross made the case uh, for the duty to obey on the basis of the duty of justice, there's been many different kinds of accounts. Uh, but the structures, uh, the, the structure of the arguments are similar. So for each account. The duty of justice both grounds and limits the duty to obey the law and that, that's why I, uh, there's uh, some, some leeway for me. So um, each uh, account contends that the natural duty of justice requires submitting to the state. But each places a limit on the duty to obey the law at the border of legitimate, liberal, democratic states. So the, the, all these uh, duty of justice based accounts of the uh, duty to obey are uh, always tied to democratic legitimacy. Mm-hmm. And um uh, roughly, that's because, well, the duty of justice addresses individuals as free and equal citizens, and so it cannot obligate them to maintain uh, legal and sociopolitical conditions that deny people that free and equal status. So, on all these accounts, the duty to obey the law is, is limited, and injustice dissolves it. So... That's where I, 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 I start. And what I do is try to reach some clarity on the contours of the injustice by sketching, um, uh, a typology of the uh, injustices that can and often do arise within broadly legitimate society. So it's, it's not an exhaustive typology, but I, 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 I take the, the injustices I identify to be, uh, fairly, um, Common mm-hmm. in otherwise broadly legitimate societies. So, so uh, first there's uh, disrespect, which consists of the uh, public denial of citizens' free and equal status. Um, an, an example would be um, anti-trans bathroom policies, such as in North Carolina, which uh, attached bashr- bathroom access to the gender one is assigned at birth, or the burkini bans on the French Riviera. Um, Second, uh, wrongs to non-members, so that this injustice involves um, uh, democratically sanctioned violations of the basic rights and dignity of non-citizens at home and abroad. So think of restrictive anti-immigration policies or unjust um, foreign military interventions. Um, Next, deliberative inertia, which occurs when uh, issues and discourses are blocked from the deliberative agenda, Um, for instance, when it comes to environmental or animal rights issues or economic inequality. Um, The uh, fourth uh, type of injustice is official misconduct, which consists in routine illegal practices uh, by officials, acting on their authority, think police brutality or pol- political corruption. And the last one is public ignorance, which occurs when the states, when the state prevent uh, the people from learning about conduct programs and policies that they should know and deliberate about. So these injustices are uh, not Uh, do not necessarily lead to a collapse of uh, the state's legitimacy, but they partially weaken or dissolve the duty to obey the law, at least in those areas. Um, And so uh, where the duty of justice does not require obeying the law, as I think is the case in this context of injustice and democratic deficits, I want to argue that the duty of justice... There permits and sometimes require, sometimes requires uh, resisting injustice. Instead, uh, it can, when uh, principled disobedience better advances justice uh, than. Uh, uh, then if you obey the law. So it isn't always the case, right, that principal disobedience would better advance justice, but in some cases it will. Or when it can um, serve to uh, alert the public um, to the power differentials that uh, threaten democratic legitimacy, Um so, as a, so that's the 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 uh, the argument for the duty to resist in its general form. Now, the the final step of the argument identifies the the methods through which the this duty to resist, based on the duty uh, uh, of justice, can be satisfied, and so. One is education, so that does not necessarily require educational initiatives so to to raise public awareness, to inform the public, to uh, maybe um, help uh, advance a better commi- a better understanding of um, of democratic legitimacy or a better conception of justice. I- educational uh, initiatives don't. Need to be unlawful, but I look at some of the, uh, some hacktivists, um, campaigns, um, and digital disobedience, uh, to raise awareness about digital rights and, and, and see them as, um, in their way, um, um, promoting the duty of justice and satisfying, uh, a, a duty to resist in context of, um, of deliberative inertia about digital rights. Mm. A second method is, is protest, which can include civil disobedience. And there I look at uh, uh, the civil rights movement as um, a very much um, um, e- eager to change the community's conception of justice, so kind of tailored to um, uh, enhancing the, the uh, majority's understanding of what constitutional um equality requires um a, a, the a third method is covered disobedience uh, so the sanctuary movement i think um is a good example of um um, principle disobedience that, uh, uh, realizes the duty of justice in context of, uh, so wrongs to non members, right? I was talking about the restrictive anti immigration policies. And uh, then perhaps more surprisingly, vigilantism. So, right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> The idea there is that there are, there are, so vigilantism is usually most of the time um uh, impermissible because it consists of usurpation of um uh, the state powers, especially law enforcement powers, often for unjustifiable ends. But I was interested in uh, groups like the Deacons for Defense hmm. who uh during Jim Crow um protected uh, civil rights workers and uh, the civil rights activists uh, and were um, patrolling neighborhood to ensure the safety of people. So what they were doing was a kind of collective self-defense in context of uh, institutional inefficacy and utter unwillingness to uh, protect the uh, bodily integrity and life of, uh, of blacks. So I take that as um a a kind of contribution to advancing um the duty of justice in this particular context where, you know, with, with uh, official misconduct in, in the background and disrespect front and center. Right. Um, and the last one is, uh, whistleblowing. So I look at the Panama and Paradise papers and, uh, Snowden's leaks and, uh, argue that, um, they constitute, um, um, justified, worthwhile efforts to, um, uh, um, inform the public about uh, things that should be known and deliberated about and put on the agenda important issues for the whole community to be discussing. right.
0: Um, so good. now one of the you know one of the um, alternative views of political obligation um, uh, is the the sort of fair play arguments, right the duty of fair play. Um, So I take it that part of the the strategy for the book is to take each of these standard accounts of political obligation and show how they can be easily extended to um, generate the duty uh, to resist. Um, Can you tell us a bit about how the duty of fair play can be marshaled uh, uh, in in favor of uh, the duty to resist?
1: Um, Yes. So, again, I start with the uh, the argument for the duty to obey. So, uh, with fair play, so the duty of fair play requires reciprocating for benefits received, uh, doing one's share in producing mutual benefits. So, fair play theorists of political obligation um, understand citizens as uh, participants in a mutually beneficial cooperative scheme. What are these um, mutual benefits? Excuse me, they're produced by the cooperative scheme. Um, benefits like stability, peace, uh, rights protection, safe roads, and uh, other public goods. Um, they, uh, so champions of uh, political obligation on the basis of fair play say that, uh, you need citizens' compliance, uh, with the law. Um, you need them to pay taxes and so on in order to provide all these public goods and uh this this the cost of of complying with the law is reasonable and fairly distributed, and so everyone is morally bound uh, to do their part in sustaining the state and because it's fair play so the the duty is owed to fellow citizens right and not right. to the state and so it is met primarily uh, i mean mainly really yeah through obedience to the law. Okay, I, so on, on all the on all fair play accounts, um, participants are permitted to refuse to cooperate with uh, exploitative or harmful schemes. So that's what I'm interested in: is right. what follows uh, uh, for citizens under conditions of injustice. And I look at. Um, uh, schemes, uh, social schemes that do not distribute be- benefits and burdens fairly or that impose harms on non-members. Um, and so well, fair play theorists would say well, nothing follows, basically, yeah, you don't have to cooperate with uh, unfair schemes because the the duty of fair play is not going to be triggered because some of the conditions are missing, or they might say it is nonetheless triggered. Um, if you consent to it, right? right. But uh, the obligation to cooperate would be very weak and would be uh, defeated. So either way, you can refuse to cooperate, even if you benefit, right? You can refuse cooperating with uh, uh, unjust schemes of coordination. But what I what I argue is that um, fairness doesn't just uh, permit beneficiaries of unfair schemes to uh, not cooperate. Fairness prohibits uh, benefits, beneficiaries of unfair schemes uh, to cooperate. And I, I call it the, the negative argument, and it rests on an analysis of fairness, prohibition of free writing. So the idea is that um, uh, benefiting from an exploitative or a harmful scheme under certain uh, conditions involves the same deontic wrong as free writing. So um, just as fairness uh, prohibits free riding, so it prohibits benefiting from exploitative or harmful scheme because it involves the same wrong, that is, objectionable, erogation of privileges or wrongful exploitation. So depending on how you cash out the uh, wrongfulness of free riding. You might say what's wrong with it, as it at its heart is that it's a kind of uh, wrongful exploitation, or you might say what's wrong is that uh, you um, uh, treat yourself uh, differently, um, you uh, uh, gain some unearned, unearned benefits. Uh, on the basis of uh, others' compliance with the scheme, and so that's what's wrong. And so I I argue that that's exactly what happens uh, in these schemes when beneficiaries um, uh, continue to cooperate, and so they need to cease benefiting from the unjust scheme of coordination.
0: Right. And so that let me just ask you a quick question there. So that kind of argument, though, makes it seem as though the duty to resist might be more stringent in the case of the beneficiaries rather than the actual victims of the injustice.
1: Yeah, that's right. So in this in this chapter, I um, the duty to resist on, on the basis of fair play only binds the beneficiary.
0: Right.
1: And th- all I have to say about victims comes at the end when I um, I develop an argument for solidarity on the basis of fair play. Right. right. Uh, which so is supposed to apply both to beneficiaries and victims. Um, and the idea is basically that, um, you know, resistance itself should be seen as the a social scheme with uh, mutual benefits. And so you cannot free ride on others' resistance efforts, and that's why you have to join, whether you're a victim or a beneficiary. Right. But that's right. So the, the argument here um, only applies to uh, the, the beneficiaries.
0: Fantastic. Uh, yeah. So um, uh, I want to yeah. make sure that we get to, we, with that, that we cover the bases here because uh, the, you know, the arguments really are, um, uh, you know, really intriguing. Um, uh, what about this, this sort of the Samaritan duty to obey the law? What about the Samaritan theories of political obligations?
1: Yes, yeah, so they, they are a little less well-known as accounts of the duty to obey uh, the law, I think. So the Samaritan duty requires uh, rescuing those in peril or dire need when uh, when one can do so at reasonable cost to oneself. Um, Keith Wellman has, uh, has articulated a Samaritan argument for the duty to obey. He argues that um, by achieving political stability, the state rescues everyone from the violence and chaos of the state of nature and that's why it has the right to coerce me so there's an account of legitimacy there first Um, if my compliance with the law uh, is necessary to the state's uh, Samaritan mission then I have a Samaritan duty to comply with the law but it doesn't exactly work so straightforwardly, because as a matter of fact, my compliance is not necessary, right? The state can um, um, function, achieve political stability and, uh, and su- succeed at the, its Samaritan mission, whether or not. Contis Delmas obeys, with the, obeys the law. So uh, Wellman supplements the, the Samaritan account uh, with non-consequentialist considerations of fairness. So we end up with um, the duty to obey is our fair share of the communal Samaritan chore of uh, rescuing others from the peril of the state of nature. So that's the uh, argument for the duty to obey the law. So my Samaritan arguments for obligations of disobedience and resistance uh, go like this. So there are there two of them. One is for uh, a Samaritan duty to break laws that prohibit Samaritan rescue. And then there's the a little more uh, complex and general Samaritan political obligation of resistance. So the first argument is straightforward. The, the, the idea is this. If and when the Samaritan duty holds, it will hold, even if fulfilling it forces an agent to break the law. So it's uh, it's as straightforward as it sounds. If the state outlaws performance of the duty, citizens have a duty to disobey the law, uh, because that Samaritan duty will be uh, much weightier than the presumptive duty to obey, right? That's the idea. So um, examples of laws that prohibit Samaritan rescue from, taken from the Um, U.S. uh, context include the 1850 Fugitive Slave Law Act, which had um, some provisions uh, that prohibited the concealing, harboring, shielding fugitive slaves. And more recently, unfortunately, some anti-immigration policies that also forbid assisting undocumented migrants. Um, So Alabama, the uh, law on the The books. For a while, it was then struck down um, by courts, but it also criminalized the concealing, harboring, shielding uh, unauthorized aliens. France has also an immigration law like this that punishes anyone who uh, facilitates or attempts to facilitate uh, the illegal entry, movement, or residence of a. of a foreigner in France. Mm. Um, so, so, so that's the straightforward case for a Samaritan duty to disobey the law. Then the case for Samaritan civil disobedience, um, and uh, ex, in that chapter, I actually don't say very much about uncivil disobedience, but I do try to say that there's a just uh, general political obligations of resistance, including through civil disobedience. Um, so it, it kind of extends the reasoning um, uh, from the simple case to more complex situations. So I uh, look at what I call persistent Samaritan perils, which um, involve cases where injustice generates. Uh, enables or aggravates Samaritan perils, making them pervasive and frequent. So here, the, the, the state, the society doesn't just produce laws that prevent rescue, but it is structured in a way that, um, generates the frequent occurrence of Samaritan perils. So in ways that are, um, predictable given uh, the law, right? So examples include um, Jim Crow, again, the racial caste system in the U.S., which um, induced persistent Samaritan peril uh, by subjecting uh, African-Americans to conditions of extreme material deprivation, coercion, intimidation, and terror, and the violence against blacks there was routine, and it was officially sanctioned, which is important also to make it a persistent Samaritan peril here. So there was an institutional failure to protect, there was the fact that police and officials were themselves actively involved in uh, in violence against African-Americans. Um, uh, other examples of persistent Samaritan perils include um, the American urban ghetto, uh, which I think can be described as sources of persistent Samaritan perils, especially for young men and women. So given uh, um, a crime and a lack of, uh, of um, good community policing, and of course given uh, widespread police brutality, um, refugees are under persistent Samaritan peril, so at home when they are forced uh, into displacement in their journeys, in refugee camps, uh, which are unsanitary, um, depressing places with alarming, lev- high, alarmingly high levels of uh, violence and suicide. Mm. I look at women in I- India who fear for their safety in public spaces and suffer a very high incidence of sexual assault. So th- those are, um, I, 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 um, conceptualize these, um, I characterize these um, <clears throat> sociopolitical conditions as persistent Samaritan perils. Now, the next step in the argument is to say that citizens are passers-by uh, witnessing persistent Samaritan perils. And so, uh, what does Samaritan rescue look like for uh, these uh, citizen um, passers-by? And I think that many citizens are passers-by there, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, they... Um, I, I think that they may be well positioned to uh, fulfill the duty to rescue through uh, reform. So the the only way to uh, uh, really address persistent Samaritan perils is to eliminate the injustice at the root of the perils through reform. So, right, so one thing they could do is just bystander intervention in each time a Samaritan peril arises but that would not do anything to address the persistence of Samaritan perils. So the only way to address the latter is to radically reform um, the structures, the law, the practices that lead to uh, uh, generating, enabling, aggravating Samaritan perils. And so the last step is that the Samaritan duty can support obligations to call for reform given the Samaritan mission. And calling for reform can often be effectively done through principled disobedience. So that's the last step of the argument.
0: Right, right. fabulous. Um, what? So finally, the 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 remaining sort of um, uh, pillar uh, on which um, the general duty to obey the law is often. Uh, supported or um, are what are called sort of associative or relational theories uh, of political obligation. Now you claim that these too um, can be shown to support a general duty to resist. Yeah. So. That-
1: The the associativist series, the the, the argument in that chapter works a little bit differently because there are so many associativist arguments uh, for political obligation that I can't uh, really appeal to all of them. I say that because all the previous chapters really try to appeal to any champion of the given ground uh, for for the moral duty to obey the law. So I can't quite do that with uh, associativist arguments because they're so diverse. But so there's, um, you know, there's uh, conceptual uh, arguments, identity arguments, and I look at value-driven arguments. So just to to be really uh, brief, so some associativist series told that um, members in a political community basically just conceptually entails political obligation, so I wasn't really interested in those kinds of arguments. Others, others hold that um, uh, it's about the feeling of belonging, the feeling of identity that comes with uh, political membership. So those who identify with the group they belong to are bound by its rules um, and because they usually say regardless of what these rules requires, I wasn't really interested in those arguments <laughs> either. So the, 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 the ones that I find the most compelling on their own terms as arguments for the duty to obey the law are those that uh, ground uh, political obligation in the value of political membership so the because of the character use, usefulness or the purpose of the relationship that members share. So I focus on on one particular value-driven associativist account, and that's the uh, the, the the one um, defended by the late Ronald Dworkin in Justice for Hedgehogs. And I think it offers a really attractive account of associative political obligation um in part because it uh, it draws on dignity which is a really powerful concept with great currency in politics and law and philosophy and so I hope that my arguments there appeal to both associativist theorists and champions of dignity. So uh, briefly, Dworkin argues that um, um, so special obligations like all the other moral requirements are grounded in uh, the uh, overarching uh, value of dignity, uh, which governs. And unifies ethics and morality, and really basically demands respecting humanity in all its forms. So dignity pro- prohibits um, subordination and it prohibits domination. And um, to him, political obligation uh, derives from um, the internal character of uh, political relationships that preserve dignity. Um, so Dignity forbids subordination, but it permits us to share our responsibility for our own lives with others as we do in democracies. And when the deference is reciprocal, then we have a duty to obey the law of that association. Um, So that's that's, uh, uh, roughly the the account, Uh, but uh, Dworkin is um, attuned to, is sensitive to the Problems of, I mean, political association is a risky relationship. We, we risk, uh, subordination, subservience in them. And so we have to be really, um, careful and attentive to, um, make sure that the, the relations of, uh, power always show reciprocal deference. So, so the question I address in that, uh, chapter is, okay, what does a person Ourself herself and others in the face of a uh, polity's failure to treat her or some others as an equal and valuable member, right? So so, so that's the question, and um, the idea is that political membership in conjunction with the demands of dignity supports a general obligation to resist once and others' uh, violations of dignity. Um, and so... The, the, uh, what the scope, so what the general obligation of resistance requires in uh, specific circumstances depends on, on the uh, kind and magnitude of the indignity threatened. It depends on the agent's abilities and opportunities and their particular position relative to the indignity. But uh, what I do is examine uh, four related uh, purposes of resistance. Um, which uh, goes some way to fleshing out how to um, uh, satisfy the the general obligation of resistance. And So one is rectification. You you fix the flood law, policy, institution um, through reform or revolution. Um, A second is communication. So it's about publicly condemning the law, policy, institution or system that threatens dignity. A third is assertion, so uh, affirming uh, one's dignity in the face of um, uh, threats and denials of it. And uh, the fourth is solidarity, so acting in and expressing cohesion with or among the oppressed. And so um, these goals are uh, interrelated uh, because, you know, asserting one's dignity and expressing solidarity are communicative acts and communication is the first step toward rectification. Um, but I, I, I found Dworkin's account really interesting because basically it tells us that the reasons you have to care, uh, the reasons you have to, to care about how your life goes are also reasons for you to care about other people's lives. Yeah. And so, yeah, so it requires everyone to resist violations of some members' dignity. And I found that really powerful. And in that chapter, I I illustrated with prison protests, which I think are are very interesting uh, sites of of injustice. And I I look at a lot of civil disobedience here from uh, provisional IRAs, dirty protests and hunger strikes in Northern Ireland to Attica and uh, California, hunger strikes against solitary confinement. So I try to uh, look at a different sort of, uh, of
0: agents here. Uh, with that chapter. Yeah. Um, so, given that the argument um, tries to show that, um, and, and does a good job, I should say, of showing that um, the duty to resist follows from um, many of these sort of standard angles one might take uh, in defending the general duty to obey the law. Um, I guess there's one objection, and, and it's one that you're 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 keen to address, um, is a kind of demandingness objection, right? One objection um, is that um, the view, your view, the view that there's a duty to resist, and sometimes resistance can take the form of uncivil disobedience, um, that this duty would impose on citizens fairly stringent demands uh, to resist injustice by means of principled protest, um, including perhaps in some cases uncivil law breaking. Um, can you tell us a little bit about how How you deal with the demandingness worry?
1: yeah i don't think i deal with it very satisfyingly i'm afraid but um here's what i have to say about it um first i recognize the objection so it it's a really multi-layered objection it's it's not just demandingness it's the epistemic and moral uncertainty of our action in the world so it's um it is it is daunting to consider uh, the extent of everything we might be required to do especially if it doesn't stop at the merely legal right so right. how realistic is it to uh, ask so much of ordinary citizens and um because you know political obligations of resistance are imperfect so one has discretion as to whether and how to fulfill them so you're kind of on your own it seems to figure out uh what uh, your obligation to resist injustice requires you to do in particular context how much it requires you to do Uh, you must assess the moral merits of the law, you must evaluate uh, their effects on people and on the integrity of the legal system, you must choose among different methods of resistance. So we we may err at every step of the way, we may be mistaken about injustice and so on, and we may end up causing more harm than good. So it's not just demanding, it may be uh, all, all things considered undesirable to... Uh, ask, uh, citizens, um, to, to do that. So, <laughs> my response, um, well, I mean, unsurprisingly, part of what I want to say is just that we shouldn't expect morality to be anything other than demanding in, um, the non-ideal circumstances in which we live, which are often marred, uh, by injustice. Um, a- another response is that um, the duty to obey the law, which a lot of people accept, makes very burdensome demands on citizens. You have to pay taxes, sit on juries, uh, be conscripted, uh, and serve in the military in some cases. And so there's no reason political obligations uh, in the face of injustice cannot be equally demanding. Um And um another sort of response is that... um we yeah, we have limited uh, time and cognitive resources and financial resources. We have other valuable projects to pursue. This may mean that we we cannot be expected to devote ourselves entirely to struggle for justice and democracy. But it certainly does not mean that we can just shrug off our political obligations as excessively demanding and do nothing, which is why I really think that you can be um, a blameworthy for uh, inaction. And uh, one thing I want to say too is that, so uh, especially when it comes to the worry of just letting individuals be private judges of uh, everything that's at stake here along the way of resisting injustice. So in the last chapter, I look at, um, Thinking and resistance as collective endeavours. So I I use um, Hannah Arendt's and Michael Walzer's conceptions of civil disobedience as kind of group-centered practices, and I also use Amelie Rorty's analysis of of ambivalence um, to argue that um, when we are pulled in different directions by what we feel are conflicting duties, or when we are trying to act on our obligations of resistance but are uh, confused about the, the shape uh, they should take, we um, should respond to these, uh, these uh, pools, this confusion with uh, collaborative engagement. Um, it's what we usually do, whether we think about it that way or not, but it's especially important, of course, in the realm of political, uh, action. And I think that if we reflect and deliberate together, we're more likely to get things right, just as, um, uh, if we resist together, we're more likely to achieve things. So, um, that's the, the, huh. my response.
0: Yeah. Interesting. So, um, Uh, You've been – Candice, you've been very generous with your time uh, and so I want to thank you. Um, Last question, um, what will you do next? What's – this is a fabulous book. Are you – off to write another one <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh, I, yeah I've not started another booklands project so I, I'm working on a couple of articles now one, uh, one is so I'm continuing to think about civility and incivility I'm, I'm writing a, um, an entry for the Cambridge Companion to civil disobedience and I'm, I am I want to examine in great detail theories of civility so outside the uh, literature on civil disobedience really see the um, the, the best argument one can uh, um, find for civility and against incivility and um, and the other is a, a project provisionally called uh, Disobedience from the Margins, where I look at uh, dissident voices and disobedient practices from uh, undocumented migrants, um, stateless people, and, um, and prisoners who engage in self-destructive disobedience like hunger strikes and lip-suing. And I uh, see whether uh, examining those practices tell us something uh, more about um citizenship, political action, and the the, the forms of principal disobedience.
0: Well, Candice, that all sounds fabulous and um, a very nice uh, series of um, uh, issues that are stemming out of uh, the book that you've written, which uh, I, I, I for one, found uh, really, really stimulating. Um, I want to thank you for your time today, for joining us. Thank you, Bob. Uh,
1: I, I really enjoyed it.
0: Oh, that's fabulous. I I enjoyed it, too. And and thank you, listeners, for joining us for our discussion today. Uh, uh, We were discussing um, Candice Delmas' new book, A Duty to Resist When Disobedience Should Be Uncivil. Uh, The book is published by Oxford University Press. It's just out now. Thank you for tuning in, and bye for now.